Greetings, and God bless you all. Today we are going to look at a special passage of Scripture in the Gospel of Mark, commencing at chapter 3, verse 7, to the end of the chapter, that's verse 35. We shall look through this passage in four sections, and we will read through the relevant Scriptures as they apply to each one. But first, a little bit of context and background. Uh, let's just uh, commit our, uh, our time to the Lord. Um, Father, we just thank you for being with us today. And Lord, it is your word, and we just invite the Holy Spirit. Lord, you be the teacher, you be the preacher, and we pray inspire your word to our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So a little bit of context and background. Now, our title for this message focuses on who is this Jesus? Some revelations from Mark chapter 3. In fact, many scholars over the centuries have emphasized that this is the primary question that Mark sets out to answer for his readers and audiences. When you think of it, such a question immediately makes a lot of sense because the contents of the gospel, uh, the gospel message, can only be good as the person who brought it. Once we understand who Jesus is, we have no issue with the contents, including its truth, its authority, its authenticity, its eternal ramifications, and so on. In fact, right from the very beginning, of this gospel. Mark commences to answer this question of who is this Jesus? He says in the very first verse of chapter one, the beginning of the gospel of Christ, the Son of God. Throughout history and even to the present day, there are individuals, some of our reputable institutions even, political, educational organizations, mainstream media, religions, even well-meaning people who say things like this. Well, Jesus was a good man. He was a moral man. Um, things like he wanted to draw people to God. He is a prophet. Even that he is a genuine person recorded in history, which, which he is. But Mark makes it very clear from the outset that Jesus, he is far, far more than this. He is nothing less than the Son of God. And that's what Mark sets out to achieve from the very first verse of this book, in fact. The foundational truth, this foundational truth that he is the Son of God is not to be watered down, diluted, or sidelined in any shape or form. As scholars never tire of telling us, if, if there is a, a single theme in this gospel that is above and beyond any other theme, it is that Jesus is, beyond any doubt or question, the Son of God. 
And most of what Mark says and narrates in his gospel is about proving this fact about Jesus. Anybody who does not want to believe that Jesus is the Son of God will have to throw out the entire gospel of Mark. Now, before we begin with our first section there in chapter 3, Mark has already traveled some distance in this direction that, that we've been talking about, uh, relating such narratives as, uh, as healing the sick there in chapter 2, verse 3. Uh, you would have read that. Having the authority to forgive sins in 2, verse 7, drawing some disciples to him. You see this, for example, in chapter 2, verse 14, putting the scribes and Pharisees in place. 2.16, revealing he is Lord over the Sabbath and uh, even healing on the Sabbath there at the end of chapter 2 and into the start of chapter 3. So this is already beginning to answer Mark's question regarding the identity of Jesus. Only the Son of God could have the power, the authority to do all these things. Which brings us to our scripture passage today, there in Mark chapter 3, verses 7 to 35. It starts off with a summary, the section here today. It starts off with a summary of Jesus' ministry, then a section where Jesus appoints 12, followed by a blasphemous accusation of the scribes, and finally a, a strange visit by his family. Throughout these episodes, we will discover that ordinary people know who, who he is. The demons know exactly who he is. The 12 disciples know who he is. But the scribes have no idea who he is. And even Jesus' family has no idea who he really is. So here is a first lesson we, we could notice in this passage of Scripture as we start this off today. Do we know who Jesus is? Now, before you casually answer, yes, you know, knowing, knowing Jesus involves responsibility. Jeremiah once said of God's people, for my people are foolish, they know me not in Jeremiah 4.22, and Luke says in 6.46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? So there are a lot of lessons we can learn from this passage of Scripture in Mark, and let's start looking at them now. Our first section in chapter 3, verses 7 to 12, uh, we entitle this, The Multitudes and Even the Demons Know who Jesus is. Let's start reading this first portion, portion of Scripture. Okay, 3.7, it starts off with this. Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples, and a great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea, verse 8, and from Jerusalem and from Udemir and beyond the Jordan and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon, a great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. And he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd, so that they would not crowd him. For he had healed many, with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. 
whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, you are the son of God. Verse 12, and he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. Let's have a look. We immediately hear of the multitudes who are following Jesus. They're in 3 verse 7. They are already coming from all directions, from Edom, that's Udemia, uh, and Judea, they're to the south, southeast. Perea is to the east, Tyre and Sidon to the north, all directions of the compass, in other words, except from the sea. Now, most of these people, they only had hearsay to go by, being so far away, yet they traveled, obviously, quite some distances to, to see Jesus, to hear Jesus. Mark mentions the multitude uh, three times in these first six verses and begins to highlight another of the great themes of Mark's gospel that we ought to take note of, and that is the popularity of Jesus. So here is a second thing we can learn from this early part of the scripture uh, in Mark. One of our jobs today as Christ's disciples is to make him popular by our faithfulness to his word, by our lifestyle, and the relationships we create. Now, we don't mean popular in a modern social media or pop culture sense, but popular in the sense that all humanity needs him. Only he is the way, the truth, and the life. So notice that these multitudes crowd him there in, in 3 verse 9, and they press about him there in 3 verse 10 necessitating him, what's he going to do after being pressed and crowded so much? Um, well, he requests a small boat, verse 9, to free himself to teach and minister. We assume, by the way, that the boat comes from one of uh, the fishermen disciples. Now, the reason uh, for this crowding is because he had healed many. So verse 10 tells us that. And, um, um, and by the way, the, the Greek here refers to, uh, to all, although our English might say many, it's very clear from the Greek that, uh, that all that came to him were in fact healed. Now, this outcome of crowding is understandable. We often think of our own pressing needs to be met and don't always give time and space for listening to what Jesus wants to say to us or what the needs of other people might be. Hence, the need for Jesus to teach and preach from a small distance, like in this boat, um, it makes a lot of sense, not to mention its uh, many acoustic uh, qualities when you are on water. Um, I remember a number of times fishing with uh, my dad uh, down a river, especially at nighttime when it was uh, extra quiet, but even during the day, um, the, uh, the, the, we could hear people fishing way down the river in another boat because the sound would just kind of bounce off the water, it seems, and, and, and uh, come to us in our boat, and, and we could hear them quite clearly. Very good acoustic qualities over calm water. We, so we learn here, 
from this, a third truth or lesson in this passage today, namely the necessity to learn from Jesus, to hear and study his words, and not to be just doing things and activities all the time. There are times when we need to sit at Jesus' feet and not just crowd him out like they're doing here with demands and requests. Jesus needs time aside so he can preach and teach. Remember the story of Mary and Martha, where Martha was fixated on the, on the project, the doing, always wanting to do things, and it has its place, but there are times we just need to sit at the feet of Jesus, learn from him. So soon, in our reading of this passage, we come to a very interesting section on the reaction of the demons, there in chapter 3, verses 11 to 12. As we have just noticed, the multitude clearly know who Jesus is, attempting to crowd him out wherever he goes. But who else, who else really, really knows who Jesus is? Well, it's the demons. They know. The reaction is quite profound. Jesus does not have to say anything. He does not have to do anything. He does not even have to deliver anybody. The demons, upon encountering Jesus, would simply, verse 11, fall down before him and cry out. They know who he is. And notice what it is that they cry out. Verse 11, you are the son of God which links us right back to the start of the gospel in 1 verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This all tallies with what we read elsewhere, like in Philippians chapter 2 verse 9, where we read, God bestowed on him, Jesus, the name which is above every name, so that, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In fact, in the Gospel of Mark, the deliverance of demons is not so much about people being delivered, but about the authority of Jesus, in which demons seem to crumble in a hopeless heap when coming anywhere near him, such as the commanding high authority of Jesus, and he is, he has the commanding high authority because of who he is. He is the Son of God. And this is Mark's major point. Therefore, a fourth lesson we can learn from all this is that our witness and ministry is likely to be ineffective and powerless without relying on the name and authority of Jesus. As Peter elaborated in the book of Acts, when explaining how the lame man was healed at the gate, uh, beautiful. On the basis of faith in his name, the name of Jesus, which has strengthened this man, whom you see and know, and the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health, we read in Acts 3.16. Peter and John, they certainly knew the power, the authority of Christ. Try and minister or witness in your own strength, and you will become totally disappointed, disillusioned, 
and ineffectual. So one final feature of this first section, a very interesting feature, is the command from Jesus to the demons not to make him known. There in 3 verse 12. Now, we shall see this emphasized a number of times in Mark, in fact. It seems, it seems a strange thing at first until we understand why. After all, it's kind of ironic that it is the demons who tell the truth about who Jesus is, something his many human opponents like the scribes and the Pharisees will not. They will malign truth about Jesus at every opportunity. Rather, the command of silence to these demons is based on two things. One reason is because Jesus is avoiding the proclamation of a divine title, the Son of God, of course. Given the tinderbox and the internecine rivalries of first century Palestine, in which any hopeful zealot or revolutionary stood ready to fan his revolutionary hopes into a flame. The other reason for telling the demons to be silent is because it would have brought about immediate confrontation with the Roman authorities. They would not take kindly to an announcement of the arrival of some new king, and this would inevitably shorten the time Jesus needed for his ministry. This time will, well, it will come to a climax in, at the due time, leading to the crucifixion, but that is for later. So a fifth thing we can learn from this passage is this. We need to express our witness and ministry with wisdom. We should always ask the Holy Spirit for wisdom and guidance because different situations require different approaches. Despite being who he is, Jesus is still being tactful, and uh, he's telling the demons here to be quiet. It's a very practical thing. Sometimes I think even looking back, I feel that I might have been right about something, but wrong in the way that I went about it. I can even think of some of my many, many student classes in the past maybe some questions I got or even some of the, sometimes the dispositions or even attitudes sometimes of students. And um, I think I might have been right about some things, but on reflection, the way I went about it probably was not. And this is where we need wisdom and a bit of tact at times, just a bit of good common sense. So we see even Jesus using this uh, here uh, regarding the demons. He doesn't want to be cut off prematurely in any way at all. So yet again, Mark's purpose of disclosing to his readers who Jesus is, is served, because nobody would go to these lengths to command silence if it were not true. Jesus is the Son of God. The multitudes know it, and the demons know it. Verse 11, therefore, sounds the high note concluding this first section. They fall down before him and cry out saying, you are the son of God. Let's never water down who he is. Well, this brings us now to uh, the second uh, section of this 
passage of Scripture, uh, still in chapter 3, uh, verses 13 to 19. The 12 disciples know who Jesus is. Let's read these verses, starting with 3.13. And he, uh, Jesus, went up to the mountain and called those whom he had himself wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed 12 so that they would be with him and that they could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. Verse 16, and he appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to, to them he gave the name Boanges, which means sons of thunder. Verse 18, and Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. The first thing we notice in this section is that those called to be disciples is a matter of Jesus' sovereign choice. It seems they were already following Jesus. For example, Simon and Andrew, even James and John, they're mentioned back there in chapter 1. Levi, Matthew, that is, back in chapter 2. We do notice here there's no hint of merit or of earning or of deserving such a calling. Mark wants his readers to know that the calling of every believer commences with God first. We can never know God in our own strength or even earn our way into his presence. None of us were so holy that we first reached out to God. Rather, it is his great love that first reached out to us. So here is a, a first lesson we can learn in this second section we're looking at now. We are called with a holy calling. And the fact that he calls us means that we must be special to him. Never put yourself down and say you are not worthy, you are not good enough, you don't have what other people have. Our confidence is in God, not in ourselves. And he thinks we are pretty special. Even the apple of his eye, as the Old Testament would put it. Another thing we notice here is that they are not initially being called to a project or to a job or even to a ministry. They are being called to a person, Jesus. So the appointment to something or some task is a secondary matter. Sometimes we get these two the wrong way around. We think we are first called to some project or ministry, even to its success. But really, we are first called to him. Again, this is something that Mary knew over Martha. It's often been said that Christianity is the only religion in which its members are called to a person. Instead of being called to obedience to some laws or to some ritual or initiation rites or to some special religious duties to perform and so on. Notice, by the way, there is no delay on the part of the 12 disciples. Verse 13 says, they came to him. So always keep that in mind. We are always uh, 
first of all, called to the person of Jesus. The project is a secondary matter. Important, yes, but a secondary matter. Now, there's more to notice here. It's very clear from Mark that the calling there in 3.13 and the appointing, verse 14, go together. In other words, to those whom he anoints, he appoints. Or we might put it this way. After the person comes the project. There's no such thing as a retired Christian or an armchair Christian or a Christian in spiritual lockdown. We are all called to action, to commitment, to using our gifts and talents for his purposes and to be faithful to what he has called us to. So hence, it's clear that disciples here are called for two reasons. First reason is that they would be with him. That's the person that we've uh, been talking about there in 3.14. And the second reason is that he could send them out to preach. There's the project, verse 14 also. Let's have a closer look at the project for a moment. The excellent thing to note here is that Jesus does not send you out empty-handed. That is devoid of any spiritual power and authority. All right? Um, the disciples have authority to cast out demons, we read there in verse 15. This is also very important in this context because we are seeing that the authority to cast out demons is only possible because of who Jesus is, that is, the Son of God. Now, this delegated authority is passed on to the disciples. So whenever their authority is questioned, and it will be, they have the ready answer regarding where it comes from. As we read above in, in uh, Acts 3.16 concerning, concerning the healing of the lame man at Gate Beautiful. So here is a second lesson we can learn from this second uh, section of Scripture today. To those he anoints, he appoints. We all have a God-given function to perform. And he gives us, the good news is, he gives us the power and the authority to do it. We're not alone in this relying on our own talents and strengths. Uh, he gives us that power and, and authority to enable it and to accomplish it. So now this section, verses 13 to 19, concludes with the names of the disciples. We read uh, those a moment ago in the scripture. Whom he calls the twelve, by the way, in verse 14. He doesn't use, Mark doesn't use the word apostle until way later in chapter 6, in fact, verse 30. Probably because Mark is thinking one has to first be a disciple, uh, if you like, uh, that's a disciplined one who follows Jesus. One has to first be a disciple before ever being an apostle. An apostle is one who is sent forth or leading the way with a message and a mission. It actually comes from uh, the lead ship in an, uh, in, uh, an armada of, uh, uh, of, a, well, of an ancient navy. John's gospel avoids the word apostle altogether, by the way. That's John's gospel. For John, the issue is all about the person first. 
Um, and you know that gospel just speaks so much about love and relationship and, and closeness to Jesus. It seems like once that is in place, everything else can fall into place. It's about who you are before what you are. Hmm. There's nothing unusual in the naming of the 12 other than Simon Peter being mentioned first and separated by the brothers James and Don, John before Andrew, his brother, is even mentioned. Something the other synoptics uh, avoided, for example, uh, Matthew and Luke, they tended to classify the brothers together. But in Mark, um, Simon Peter here is separated um, from uh, Andrew by the, uh, the other brothers. Now, s some scholars think that this may be due to Peter's prominence later on in the early church. You know, like in Matthew 16, we read, upon this rock I will build my church. You know, Peter means stone or, or rock. So up until this time in Mark's gospel, he has always been referred to as Simon. But from here on, he will be referred to as Peter. So here is a third lesson we might learn from this uh, uh, section of scripture we're looking at now. When the Lord changes us and transforms us, it's imperative that we never turn back. Once Simon became Peter, he could never go back to being a Simon. In some way, as believers, we also become someone far more than we otherwise would have been. We need to keep this in mind whenever we feel miserable, defeated, downcast, insecure, or lacking in confidence. He has transformed our lives. Things have been left behind in our past. We are renewed and transformed and move on in him. Twelve seems to be an important number, by the way. Twelve being the number of the tribes of the kingdom of Israel. And, you know, Jesus is now ushering in the beginnings of the kingdom of God. Something I've spoke about on other occasions. Which is why the first point of business in the book of Acts is replacing Judas with Matthias in order to build the, uh, the apostles up to that number 12 again. Uh, yeah, that was the first um, um, point of business in the book of Acts. Well, let's move on now to the next section in Mark chapter 3. This is section 3 of our four sections today. So section 3 is verses 22 to 30. The scribes don't know who... Jesus is, all right? So far we've seen the multitudes know who Jesus is, right? Uh, even the demons know who Jesus is, right? And, um, and we, we've been looking here that uh, even the 12 certainly know who Jesus is, but the scribes, no idea. Let's have a read starting at verse 22. The scribes came, who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. This is serious stuff. Verse 23. And he called them to himself and began speaking to them, these scribes, in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? 
If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. Verse 27, but no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, or some translations say shall never be forgiven but is guilty of an eternal sin. Verse 30, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So the remaining verses of Mark chapter 3 illustrate a typical, what we call, Markan sandwich, in which one narrative is embedded in another for effect. And here, the narrative about the blasphemy of the scribes is embedded within the narrative about Jesus' unbelieving family. Both groups do not believe. They are similar in that both groups don't believe who Jesus is, but different in that the scribes venture overboard from spiritual unbelief into blasphemous unbelief. Well, we'll look first at verses 22 to 30. Let's look at the scribes first. We'll look at this in sections. In which the scribes make a charge that Jesus is able to cast out demons because he is part of the clan. Well, we shall look at Jesus' family after that. You can well imagine if casting out demons is being used as proof that Jesus' authority comes from him being the Son of God, then the obvious tactical attack would be to challenge the source of that authority. The conniving scribes therefore assert that the deliverances wrought by Jesus are due to collaboration with Satan. And this is where he gets his authority from. That's the charge. It's clear that the scribes have no idea who Jesus is. In this section, we read about some scribes coming down from Jerusalem, where probably the most legalistic of them lived and functioned, with the obvious goal of undermining and dismantling Jesus' ministry. Remember, there are multitudes following him wherever he goes, and this is bad news for the religious authorities. There are no questions, discussion, or dialogue just a judicial pronouncement. He is possessed by Belzebul, and he casts out the demons by the ruler of demons, there in verse 22. Hence, the accusations are twofold. Firstly, that he is possessed by demons, Belzebul, um, who is, uh, th that means lord of the flies, or lord of the dung heap, and secondly, that Jesus uh, does his deliverances through the chief of demons, Satan himself. And this is a most serious of accusations. You couldn't say anything worse 
There is nothing more diabolical, you could say, regarding where one's power and authority might come from. Even today, some people's power and authority, they might be argued to come from money, from their position in society, from their status, etc. But that's nothing like saying it comes from the devil. In short, the scribes charge that all of Jesus' miracle working activity is due to sorcery. So here is a first lesson we can learn from this section three where we are into now. In this life, we will always face accusations, some very wrongful and hurtful, but it's how we respond that counts. The accuser of the brethren is always at work. What would be Jesus' response in face of such a serious and maligned accusation? Well, he draws on two illustrations for double emphasis. And here you see that um, what we call a synonymous um, parallelism that you see in, used in Old and New Testaments for effect, where one thing sort of agrees uh, uh, with another, but said in different words. Synonymous parallelism. Jesus uses the example of war and the example of politics. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. There in verse 24, that's about war. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. Politics, there in verse 25. So Jesus is first of all relying on basic human logic and reasoning, or common sense, some would call it. Think about it. Why would Satan want to cast out Satan? This would destroy all his kingdom and all his house in no time. He cannot stand but is finished, verse 26 emphasizes. Notice the emphasis on finished. It really literally means finished. The whole idea is ridiculous even ludicrous. In reality, Jesus says no one can bring down a strong man's house unless he first binds the strong man. Now, this is something Jesus is doing every day. What is happening in Jesus' exorcisms is not the self-destruction of Satan's kingdom from within, but the overcoming of that kingdom from without. The case is dismissed. So here is a second thing we can learn here in this section. Sometimes we need to think through our logic and reasoning before jumping to conclusions. You might want to search a certain conclusion or outcome or, or goal, but don't burn yourself in the process. Remember, God also gave us a brain to use. In my experience, in my own experience, as well. Christians don't always think through where some of their decisions and activities might finish up. Think and pray through where you might finish up if you married that person or if you made that business decision or if you cut that special relationship you have had, if you shift jobs, if you take a little bit of bribery, if you neglect your family, etc., etc. Try and think through, where might this finish up? Uh, we need to think about 
some of the consequences uh, down the line. Now, the indictment that now falls on these scribes is worse than apocalyptic. This is a classic case of failing to look down the line and consider some of the potential consequences of an intended action. Jesus now charges his opponents with an unpardonable sin. I mean, you don't read of this anywhere else in any of the Gospels. Hmm. This is the first time in Mark's Gospel that we encounter the word truly there in verse 28, which is uh, the word amen in Greek, actually. Now, normally in Judaism, amen is mentioned at the end of a sentence, like the way we tend to sign off on prayer today. So Jesus mentioning it at the beginning of a sentence is striking. Why? Well, the word lends support to the importance of what is about to be said and highlights its authenticity and significance. This charge is so serious, it has eternal implications. Verses 28 to 29, as we read, it says, Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. There's eternal consequences here. So even for you and I today, we need to uh, consider some of the uh, decisions that we make. In other words, all of our sins, if truly repented of, can be forgiven. But saying that Jesus' ministry is the work of the devil so affronts the pure Holy Spirit that this sin enters the realm of the unforgivable. Notice the, the finality in the word never. It is the equivalent uh, to the willful or intentional sin of the Old Testament in which there was no atonement. Something these scribes would have been well versed in. Uh, they should have considered the consequences. It is ironic that the charge of blasphemy the scribes were often uh, accusing Jesus of is the charge they are most guilty of themselves. The charge is re-emphasized at the end of the section for double effect, verse 30, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. No wonder they, were, uh, they received such a, an indictment this being an unforgivable sin. So a third lesson we could learn from this passage is that there are limits to God's generous offer of grace and forgiveness. Now is the time during this life to repent of our sins and to put matters right before passing into a lost eternity. This brings us to our final uh, section uh, today, section four. And this covers uh, chapter 3, verses 20 to 21, a couple of verses there. And then, you know, because of the Mark and Sandwich again, where the, the, um, the blasphemous charge of the scribes come in between, comes the rest of the story there in verses 31 to 35. This is about Jesus' family. They don't know who he is. Let's have a read. The first couple of verses here, uh, Mark 3.20, 
and 21, it says, and he came and he came home and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, he has lost his senses. Uh, then comes the sandwich in verses 22 to 30. So let's pick it up in verse 31. Then his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they, they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. All right, so here we arrive at the final narrative in chapter 3. Jesus' family also seems to have no idea who Jesus is. To Mark, this is almost unimaginable, but the narrative serves to demonstrate that belief and unbelief is a matter far beyond our family blood ties, connections and relationships. Belief, or the lack of it, gets down to the human heart and how open it is to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Everyone has the opportunity to arrive, to arrive at a position of faith and belief in Jesus Christ. Unlike the scribes in the previous section who already so hardened their hearts, like the Pharaoh of Egypt, to the point of becoming unredeemable. Now, the reason for this section of Scripture all starts in verse 20, as we read a moment ago. When Jesus and his disciples were so busy with the multitude coming to them that they could not even, uh, they had no time to even eat a meal. Imagine for a lot of us today, that would be a, a, a disaster, wouldn't it, not being able to eat? The family think it is time to take custody of him. And uh, apparently reaching the conclusion in verse 21 that he has lost his senses. The unbelief of Jesus' family is something that will continue at least until apparently the resurrection. Uh, because you will see later, for instance, the prominence of James, the brother of the Lord, leading the early church in the book of Acts. So somewhere along the line, there's a big change in this family, but not yet. Now, one reason for Mark, including the scene of being too busy to eat, is because Mark makes a feature all through his gospel that Jesus is, we mentioned it before, that Jesus is popular that multitudes of people are always tracking him down and crowding him and pressing him like we also read before. And that no matter how much you try, Jesus cannot be hidden. That's a great theme in Mark. You just can't. Jesus cannot be hidden. Besides, we read elsewhere that I have food to eat that you do not know about. Well, John talks about that in chapter 4. Jesus is not hungry. It's really not even an issue. But it tells us a lot about Jesus' family. 
So one lesson we might learn uh, from this uh, fourth and final section we're looking at today, one lesson is the pressing importance of Jesus' message. And when the time calls for it, we must give our time and labor and attention to it. Okay, so sometimes there are special times, you know, and uh, as led by the Spirit, and it's a time you need to, to share. Uh, of your experiences, of the gospel, whatever the Lord will put on your heart, and to give you time and labor for it. It might be inconvenient. Maybe it's uh, you haven't had lunch yet. Uh, sometimes these things, the needs happen at very inconvenient times. But we must give our time and attention to it when the need presents itself. I think that's a good first lesson we can learn here. A second reason for Mark including the scene about Jesus' uh, family uh, is this. If even Jesus' family don't know who he is, then how much more can we fail to know who he is? A relationship with Christ is not to be taken casually or to be taken for granted. We must press on to hear his voice, to read his word, to repent of our sins, and to receive him as Lord and Saviour. In the remaining verses of this chapter, verses 31 to 35, we learn what it really means to be part of God's true family. And this is exactly the point that Mark wants to get to in this passage concerning Jesus' family. What does it take to become part of Jesus' family? What does it take? What do we have to do? Can anyone become part of the family of God? One thing is for sure. Once we come to really know who is this Jesus, we will become part of the worldwide family of God. Not so long ago, I saw a, a documentary of two Iranian ladies. ladies. They, uh, um, they became Christians, and um, they were... Uh, they were sentenced to an Iranian prison. They were in there for nine months. And uh, the story goes, uh, cutting it short, that they were eventually released after nine months because there was a flood of letters from Christians all over the world. So uh, when these two ladies were released, of course, uh, many, many pastors wanted to interview them, which they did. And uh, um, I was. Uh, I saw one of those interviews, and uh, what is interesting is that they talked about the um, their family. Obviously, not their blood relatives, but their Christian family, who had so wrote every day, every week, letters uh, regarding their release. That eventually, uh, with the global um, um, awareness of all of this, uh, the uh, the two ladies were released from prison. They referred to their Christian brothers and sisters, their family. So the text commences as we've read before, and his mother and his brothers arrived and standing outside the house, they sent word to him and called him. That's generally understood, by the way, to be Mary and Jesus' siblings born to Mary and Joseph after Jesus' birth. Notice no mention is made of Joseph in the Gospels after the birth accounts, and it's assumed 
assumed anyway that he died sometime before Jesus commenced his ministry. As scholars inform us, this is not so much about hostility. This whole episode of Jesus' family is not really about hostility from Jesus' family, but a genuine concern arising out of unbelief. So another lesson we may learn here is this. Sometimes in life, we are genuinely concerned and worried about things that look right and seem right, but is it right? Sometimes our concerns and worries have more to do with our fears, our insecurities, or maybe just what we consider to be our own good ideas. Jesus' family thought they had a good idea coming to rescue him. I think that God ideas are better than good ideas. And that is what Jesus' family don't quite get yet. Jesus did not react. He, uh, he is no doubt aware that even his own family haven't yet, uh, well, they have yet to really fathom who he is. Rather, he uses the opportunity to teach and to really uh, hammer home what it means to be part of God's family, part of the kingdom of God. So therefore, we can learn this too. In another lesson, being part of the family of God is not about blood relationship. It's about spiritual relationship brought about by faith and belief in who Jesus is. Hence, Jesus pointed to those believers sitting around him as examples of those who are part of this family. And who are they that are part of this family? It is evidenced by those who. There it is in verse 35, right at the end. It's evidenced by those who does the will of God. He is my brother and sister and mother. If, if we are truly disciples of Christ, like the 12, and like those sitting around Jesus, we will always have in our heart to do the will of God. As Jesus would say later, not my will, but your will be done. Even Jesus fully understood that principle. Otherwise, Mark does not declare what doing the will of God means in this uh, passage, but we do know from elsewhere in Mark that it means when it talks about being part of the family of God and doing the will of God, we know that it does mean, number one, repent and believe the gospel, and number two, to follow him. We already see that in chapter 1, verse 15, and also in verses 18 and 20. At least Jesus' family never got to the blasphemous position of the scribes. But the warning is still there, never to become so hard of heart that we never repent, never turn, never follow Jesus, never give up our own will and our own way and our own truth and find ourselves inevitably, if we are not careful, in the same blasphemous position with no remedy for never having repented of our sins. And so we come to the end of Mark chapter 3. Of course, more is yet to come from Mark in revealing who is this Jesus. That's uh, for later, sometime. For instance, in chapter 4, that will reveal that Jesus is Lord over nature. That's who he is, right? Uh, there in calming the sea. In chapter 5, it will reveal that he is Lord over death. 
in raising Jairus' daughter from the dead. In chapter 6, that will reveal that he is Lord over the elements. We find him even walking on the water. And chapter 7 will reveal that he is Lord over the Gentiles, the Syrophoenician woman, etc., etc. So there's more to come in Mark's journey on pointing out and revealing to us who is this Jesus. And chapter 3 has already gone a long way in giving us those answers. So let's just sum up a little bit here by way of a summary, some highlights from what we have learned. Before we close, number one, do we know who Jesus is? And before we casually answer yes, knowing Jesus involves responsibility. As Luke says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? A second highlight, a lesson we can learn, as we have seen back there, is we must learn from Jesus, to hear, to study his words, not to be just doing things all the time. The person takes priority over the project. A third highlight or lesson that we can learn from our uh, chapter 3 today is our witness and ministry is going to be powerless unless we apply it in the name of Jesus and with the authority of Jesus. It's by his authority that we can do anything at all. A fourth thing we can learn, express our witness and ministry with wisdom. We should always ask the Holy Spirit for wisdom and guidance because different situations require different approaches at times. A fifth lesson, to those Jesus anoints, he appoints. Are you anointed? Are you called? Well, you're also appointed. <laughs> we all have a God-given function to perform. We all have gifts and talents and abilities, right? And the good thing is we're not empty-handed. He gives us the power and authority to do it. A sixth lesson, in this life we will face false accusations, some very wrong and hurtful. It's how we respond that counts. A seventh highlight or lesson, there are limits to God's generous offer of grace and forgiveness. Now is the time during this life to repent of our sins and to put matters right, avoiding a blasphemous position of constant rejection. An eighth lesson, number eight, sometimes in life we are genuinely concerned and worried about things. Think of Martha again, worried, concerned about many things. But God ideas are better than good ideas. Number nine, there is the pressing importance of Jesus' message. And when the time calls for it, even if it's right on lunchtime or some other inconvenient moment, when the time calls for it, we must give our time and labor to it. And finally, number 10, a tenth highlight or a lesson we can learn today is being part of the family of God is not about family connections as such or blood family connections, but about spiritual relationship brought about by faith and belief in who Jesus is. Thank you for listening today. And we just pray, um, Lord, that uh, you deliver this word to everyone's heart and life. Lord, that you wrote 
these Gospels through the hands of your called writers, O Lord. Thank you for this section in Mark chapter 3. I pray, Lord, that these highlights, these lessons that we have learned today, Lord, will so become part of our lives that we will live it out and practice it, that it will change and transform our lives. Father, we just want to thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So thank you for listening, and God bless you.